welcome to the Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfinstock Publishers. I'm your host, Zach Mickle. In this podcast, we interview some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and more. Many of the folks we interview on the show are also authors with us at Whitfinstock, where we have the honor of putting into print a broad swath of work that nourishes both the academy and the church. On this episode, I interviewed Dr. Michael J. Gorman, which was really an honor. Dr. Gorman, who goes by Mike, holds the Raymond E. Brown Chair in Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore. He's the author of many books with us at Cascade, including Reading Paul, Reading Revelation Responsibly, and the forthcoming The Self, The Lord, and The Other, According to Paul and Epictetus. In our interview here, Professor Gorman and I talk about theological interpretation of scripture, missional hermeneutics, theosis, the book of Revelation, abortion, and a whole lot more. So with that, dear friends of Whitfenstock, let's head over to the interview. Okay, so let's let's start with a couple kind of fun questions unrelated to work. Um, the first being, uh, what are your favorite songs or bands from your teenage years that you still enjoy listening to? Well, if anybody has Sirius Radio, S-I-R-I-U-S, not S-E-R-I-O-U-S, uh, if you put the channel, the bridge on, that's my station. Okay. Uh, that's... Uh, folk rock from the 70s. So Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor and Carol King and others kind of related to them or sometimes not related. Uh, I still, all the less than my wife, still like to listen to the Beatles. Went to the um, Paul McCartney concert in Washington outdoors about 10 years ago and uh, uh, still like to listen to the Beach Boys. So Okay. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Okay. Let's move to um, another fun question. If you could spend a month in any country in the world, which country would you choose and why? That's a really hard question. I've, <laughs> I've spent the better part of a month in several different countries, but I was a French major. My wife was a French major and French teacher. So mm. we've spent a lot of time in France. So France would probably be my first choice, but Turkey would be a second choice, very close runner-up. Uh, I've led about 10 study tours to Turkey and Greece, and I absolutely love Greece. I mean, I, I do love Greece, but I absolutely love Turkey. Hmm. People, the, the people are so hospitable, so many interesting places and beautiful uh, scenery, as well as historic uh, sites for the study of the Bible. Sure, sure. Okay, let's go ahead and dive into um, some of your work. So you mentioned this in your intro, but you're you're kind of known for theological interpretation, right? And reading scripture kind of in service of the church. Um, so for our readers who are maybe unaware, um, I guess, how would you define theological interpretation? Like, what is it, but also what is it not? Um, and then also, what are some of the dangers um, inherent in that approach? And then what are some of the promises? Well, one of the best ways to learn about theological interpretation would be to read books by people who claim they're doing it. And not just sort of theoretical books, but actual 
interpretations of the text. So in my case, Abide and Go or Reading Revelation Responsible or any of my books on Paul are attempts to do theological interpretation, not just to talk about it. But if I were to talk about it, I would probably echo, I would begin with maybe Karl Barth's understanding of theological interpretation as reading for the subject. And he says the subject is is God. Um, my friend Richard Hayes often began his classes at Duke, at least according to his students, and according to him, with the question or with the statement, don't forget that this is primarily a course about God, uh, whether it's in a New Testament survey or whatever, um, or the text is about God. Beverly Gaventa says the same thing, who's an interpreter of, of theological uh, theological bent, reading for the subject. Um, Richard himself, Richard Hayes himself, talks about in some articles, reading with the eyes of faith. And Joel Green, and I, and I would echo all these, I'm just kind of quoting some of the big names. Joel mm -hmm. Green speaks about reading the Bible as scripture. And, and if some people kind of interchange the word Bible and scripture, but Bible in itself doesn't necessarily imply reading the book as something that has um, an authoritative and inspired slash inspirational status. Hmm. So um, one thing I think it's important to say theological interpretation is not um, it's not a particular method per se. I like to tell my students that we still read with historical and literary eyes, but those become means to an end rather than an end in themselves. And since I'm in Baltimore, I often say to students, you can go down the street to Johns Hopkins University and take classes in the Ancient Near Eastern Studies Department. And what they do is very good historical and literary work but it's not theological. When you study with us, you can raise the same questions you would raise at Hopkins and make the same observations, but you can raise different questions and more, if you will, existential issues. And not only can you, you, you must, you should. Mm -hmm. um, pitfalls to avoid or, or, or problems. Um, I suppose like any form of interpretation, people can get sloppy and not do really careful work and, and still call it theological because it, it allegedly has a spiritual focus or a theological intent or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but reading, reading scripture theologically is, is really hard work um, because there's so many different aspects of the text now that have to be considered. We can't just say we're going to do a rhetorical criticism or social scientific or, or historical or whatever, but we need to, to think about how this text has been received over the centuries, how it has been interpreted both within and without the church, um, what it has to say in particular cultural situations. So I like to tell students again, um, we're when we do theological readings and missional readings of scripture, we're expanding the context. Contexts. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, thank you. That's very illuminating. Um, yeah, so we, we've talked a good bit now about theological interpretation. 
Um, another term you use quite a bit is uh, missional hermeneutics or missional theosis. So in your book on the Gospel of John, for example, Abide and Go, um, you use these terms a lot and they're kind of core to your thesis. So how would you define those terms and how do you use them in your book, Abide and Go? Well, I think those terms are related, but, but also very distinct. So missional hermeneutics is fundamentally an approach to reading the Bible as scripture in order to discern, I would say discern and participate in the mission of God, what is usually called the missio dei, using the Latin, M-I-S-S-I-O, capital D-E-I. So to read scripture, to discern and participate in the mission of God. So I often tell my students uh, to ask three basic questions. How does this text bear witness to the human predicament? How does this text bear witness to what God is up to to repair and renew that human condition? And thirdly, how does this text bear witness to the responsibility of God's people to be involved in that um, in that reparation of the human condition? Mm -hmm. um, so that that that's kind of gives that, that gives people pegs to hang on when they're looking at a text instead of just thinking big lofty <laughs> words and thoughts. Mm -hmm. the The term missional theosis. Theosis is an older, uh, and by, by older I mean long-standing term in the Christian tradition that's not well known in the West, but it's increasingly uh, more well known. It, it basically means the process of transformation into the image of God from beginning to eschatological conclusion. And oftentimes in Christian history, that has been understood as being facilitated by contemplation, by prayer, um, by gazing on uh, Christ in some in some either contemplative or other way. And I don't want to discount any of those, but the idea of missional theosis is that we become transformed into the image of God by participating in the divine mission. So it's we, we become more like God when we have the opportunity to um, to participate in what God is, is up to in the world, either individually or, or corporately, according to the testimony of Scripture. So um, how that plays out in the book is the, the term abide and go is, is meant to capture this sort of dynamic of, especially in John 15, where Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. Abide in me. If you don't, you can't you know, bear fruit. And then in the same breath, in the same chapter, he says, go and bear fruit. So there's this deep spirituality, if you will, of abiding in Christ, a kind of mutual indwelling, and of going in the name of Christ and with the, with the purpose of continuing by the power of the Spirit, the mission of, of God through Christ in the world. So uh, that, that's, that's a missional missionally hermeneutical reading of the text because you can you could sort of see some of that and not take it as um, divine address for me or for us mm -hmm. and it's also 
relevant to the idea of missional theosis because at that point we're saying that the deepest participation in the life of Christ, by extension, the life of God, is um, by going out and washing feet, uh, by going out and, and bearing fruit, by doing Christ-like things and bringing uh, people into the divine life. So that, that, that dynamic of abide and go is, is really a missional reading of the text and it also embodies mission, the idea of missional theosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really nice kind of rebuttal, I guess, to the this kind of false dichotomy between contemplation and action. Um, yeah, where it seems like you're, you, you know, in your work, you're basically saying, you know, you can't have one without the other. Um, let's talk about uh, your book, Reading Paul, right, which is in our Cascade Companion series. Um, and is, is basically an introduction to um, kind of reading reading Paul, as the title says. So um, what would you say is the Apostle Paul's core message um, throughout his corpus, and why does it matter uh, for Christians, but also for the world at large? Well, in the early pages of reading Paul, I have a one-sentence, full-page summary. <laughs> of Paul's core message, which I won't repeat here, but you, <laughs> you could make a reference to it. I don't, I don't have the book open, so I can't give the page number. But um, the long and the short of that very long sentence, which sounds like it should be written in German, is um, that in Christ, God is creating a... God has intervened in human history to create a new humanity that's characterized by faith or faithfulness, hope, and love, uh, and, and that we all are invited to participate in and to uh, participate in the spreading of that new humanity. Um, that, hu that new humanity that that is a kind of alter culture in the sense of alternative culture, uh, alter culture to um, the reigning cultures of our day, of, of, of Paul's day or whatever. Um, so there's a, a lot to unpack in that, but that's, that's, the sh that's the short abridgment of that very long one sentence answer to the, to the question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, let's, yeah, let's move to uh, your book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, right? Obviously, Revelation has a pretty um, interesting and complicated uh, history of interpretation, especially in America. Um, so what would you say are the kind of the biggest errors that readers make in interpreting the book of Revelation? Um, and then on the other side, what are kind of the key themes in your own interpretation of it? I think one of the people who blurbed reading Revelation Responsible, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, friend of mine at, at uh, Rootbat House in Durham, North Carolina, said people tend to either completely avoid or completely fixate on the book of Revelation. So that's that's certainly 
the starting point of the problem. But once you avoid the um, avoidance issue and, and start to fixate on it, I, I would say the, the problem is what people refer to wrongly as a literal interpretation of the book. And I say wrongly because I don't believe anybody interprets Revelation literally, even those who claim to do so. Case in point, uh, Hal Lindsey back in the 60s referred to the references to locusts, giant flying locusts, as helicopters. Well, that's an interpretation that is not at all literal. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you'd be talking about giant flying locusts if you wanted to be literal in the literal sense of literal. So uh, trying to, so the, the fundamental error there is trying to find correspondences, create even correspondences between images in the book of Revelation and contemporary, that is contemporary to today, realities, whether it's oil spills in the Gulf of, Gulf of Mexico or wars in the Middle East, or, you know, whatever. Um, related to that is, is what a friend of mine in graduate school used to describe as people thinking of the Bible, Revelation, Daniel, Matthew 24, texts like that, as a puzzle with all these different pieces in it that your, your job then is to kind of take them out and create them into a timeline of a variety of um, events that are supposed to take place before um, the end of the world and then the afterlife or the afterworld or whatever. Um, so I, I think those kinds of influences and, and approaches and they're prominent in people like Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series dominate the interpretation of revelation across the theological and political spectrum in this country. As one person said, it it began that kind of approach began in England, came to the United States, and then was or exported around the world. In my approach, I tend to emphasize, first of all, how important it is to look at the actual literary genre or genres of revelation as uh, prophecy, apocalyptic, and uh, epistle or letter. I think we need to take the apocalyptic way of doing theology into account, which is by looking both sort of up and ahead, if you will, um, to realities that we can't see because they're either hidden or they haven't appeared yet. But to do that by way of images, by way of a kind of string of political cartoons. That's not original to me, but a lot of people have said that. I think it's a great image of what's going on in the book of Revelation. But in terms of my own particular emphases, I like to read, and I'd like to encourage other people to read, Revelation as really focused on uh, Christ the Lamb who was slaughtered and, and, and raised, that that's the central image of the book, that the book therefore has a lot to do with lamb power, as one person has called it, it has to do with the worship of, of, of the Lamb, um, as well as of, of God the Father. Um, uh, it has to do with the struggle between uh, misguided the misguided marriage of religion and political power. 
and that the book of Revelation stands over against that, in, in my term, civil religion. Today, we might call it um, Christian nationalism or religious nationalism, that that's, that's trying to be, that Revelation is trying to undermine that and, and show its demonic, literally demonic and dangerous quality and to offer an alternative way of, of, of being not only human, of being, but of being Christian, um, anticipating this new creation that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. So um, I think I'm on the same page as a lot of recent interpreters of the book of Revelation in scholarly circles who like to also write for um, clergy and, and lay audiences. But my probably st stronger than most, I think, is my concern about the nature of it, of Revelation's um, critique of civil religion, of, of national, of, of religious nationalism. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about, um, let's talk about kind of your earlier work um, on abortion, right? Earlier in your career, you, you wrote a good bit on um, Christianity and abortion. And obviously this is uh, still a hot button issue with the recent overturn of Roe v. Wade. Um, so what, what posture do you think that the church needs to develop on this issue in particular? You can never speak about abortion without getting in trouble. <laughs> so I'm hesitant to be too um, shall we say, um, dogmatic about this. But at the same time, I think there are two main things the church should be saying and doing about abortion. The first is to convince ourselves and others as much as possible that abortion has been understood by Christians from its earliest days as an attack on one's neighbor. And that there, there's a, that there exists a covenantal relationship between God and the unborn child and between humanity and the unborn child to which we, to whom we owe uh, a debt of love. That doesn't mean there's, uh, no exceptions to the general position of, of that, that there, there may on occasion be legitimate reasons, but as a fundamental uh, for abortion, but as a fundamental posture, it seems to me that needs to be um, the church's position. And the other hand, and people like Stanley Hauerwas and I said this a lot back in the 90s, uh, it only makes sense to hold that view if you are offering as a community a hospitable place for women who um, are are struggling to to survive, whether emotionally or physically or or whatever, to offer a hospitable place where they can bring their children to term, they can be cared for. And in all honesty, that kind of 
location is is unfortunately um, not as widespread as it ought to be. So in light of the recent decision, I think the church has a lot of catching up to do. We've done a mm -hmm. lot of um, and and if the church became what it what I think it's that vision of hospitality was, our our credibility about an, a moral stance would be amazingly enhanced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, very, I, yeah, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, I recently, I recently uh, listened to a podcast where they were kind of saying much the same thing, basically uh, kind of the dangers of the pro-life movement, especially in the, among the church's ranks is that um, now with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, it's kind of seen as this big victory. But the danger is now, you know, um, if pro-life activists are not now kind of uh, stepping in to, you know, care for um, these mothers who are kind of at risk, but instead kind of jumping to other hot button culture wars issues. Um, so there, yeah, I think there's a, a real danger there. And in our recent interview with uh, Bill Cavanaugh, he said, yeah. Much the same, much the same thing that you know, kind of this attitude of your baby, your problem, um, among a lot of the pro-life movement. Um, let's let's move to nonviolence. You've talked a good bit about Stanley Hauerwas, um, and obviously your views on on kind of Christian nationalism um, are very Hauerwasian, and I know he's been a big influence on you. Um, we could probably say much the same with nonviolence, um, which is very present in a lot of your work. So what is your view, I guess, of how the Bible is used in discussing kind of contemporary issues around violence, such as like gun violence or um, the criminal justice system or the like? Well, I want to connect this question to what we were just talking about, the abortion issue. Um, the late Ron Sider, who was also a, a friend of mine, and we collaborated on, on a couple of projects together. The starting point for him and for me for um, kind of Christian ethics is that the gospel reveals to us a God who is wanting to promote and provide life for humanity individually and corporately from womb to tomb. And this became a, you know, a kind of mantra of what was, has been called the consistent pro-life view that began really in the Catholic church back in the, in the seventies and eighties. And then some of us picked up that kind of language. Um, so it seems to me nonviolence is not a, a, a superficial supplement to the gospel or an add-on but rather it's at the very core of what uh, God's up to in, in the world and what the gospel uh, calls us to. So in, in that sense, um, as a fundamental starting point, that's to me basic to the biblical message, basic to the gospel. And so if we start there, that God's goal is shalom, and that includes nonviolence and peace in a very uh, wide-ranging sense. Um, Corinthians sees one of the first 
published pieces I wrote was called Shalom and the Unborn, and the Unborn, 1986 publication, um, at the at the behest of uh, Ron Sider, actually, who was the editor of the Transformation Journal at the time. So, um, uh, the, the starting point is significant. Then the conversation can begin if this goal of of shalom. Of, of life, of, flir- of human flourishing, of peace, of nonviolence is what sort of is part of God's mission, a significant part of God's mission in the world. How, to go back to my missional hermeneutics questions, how does scripture bear witness to the human predicament, to God's dream, if you will, or God's mission, God's will, God's vision, and how we might participate in that. So I think it takes a lot. It takes a lot of conversation to, in, in a very particular context or very particular culture, to ask the right questions. Because when I teach my students those three questions, then I have three parallel questions, which are: What is Scripture saying about this um, human condition where we are? I mean, what's going on in Baltimore is very different from what's going on in, say, rural Oklahoma. They may be related on issues of gun violence, but when I put the 11 o'clock news on every night, I know what the first seven minutes are going to be every single night of the week. Mm -hmm. The first seven minutes are going to be about three or four murders in Baltimore that took place that Mm -hmm. day. Um, And so I think pastors and others need to get together and think theologically with scripture, as Karl Barth used to say, with scripture in one hand and the news in the other or the newspaper in the other, and think through what can we do as a community to make an impact in such a way that gun violence is reduced or to go to the criminal justice system that the death penalty is uh, is is not the uh, the most common thing that happens in a state between now and uh, you know the end of the end of the fall or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't think there's any easy answers to these kinds of questions. Um, Chris uh, Hayes, Richard's son, out at at um, Fuller, has a new book out with a different publisher on on guns and violence, an edited, edited collection, which I haven't had time to read yet. But it's 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 that kind of thinking at the theological and pastoral and lay level that needs to take place in specific contexts. So yeah, there's no easy answers to these questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I appreciate the nuance because I think it's greatly lacking in a lot of the conversation. Mm, thanks. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so let's move to your your forthcoming book uh, with Cascade, which is an actually an update of your dissertation from years ago. Um, so I'm curious, what made you think to publish it now? And then kind of as you were looking back at the text, you know, what maybe surprised you? Did you feel like there were, you know, flaws to the text or that um, it needed significant updating? Or just what was your general view of your dissertation as you're looking back on it? This is an interesting uh, question because... This was not my idea. Actually, Chris Spinks, one of the main editors at 
Whippenstock slash Cascade mm-hmm. came to me more than 10 years ago and said, was your dissertation ever ever published? And I said, no, well, let's get it published. And so we actually began to work uh, on a plan for that. And at the time, we couldn't get the software to convert my old WordPerfect 4.2 five and a quarter inch floppy disks to actually work with the text. So I gave up. And then about two years ago, Michael Thompson came to me now with Whippenstock slash Cascade and asked, would you like to publish your dissertation with us? So um, I probably would have died without publishing it had it not been for Chris and Michael pushing the idea. So um, that's why I thought of publishing it. And at first, I thought it would be very easy to do just to find someone who could competently transform the files, which I finally did, and then hand them in. But it became pretty obvious that that wouldn't suffice, that it made a lot more sense to update uh, the dissertation. So what we decided was to leave the dissertation intact, but to supplement it with additional footnotes and expanded footnotes that reflected recent recent scholarship. Hmm. Yeah. That's so funny. I didn't I didn't know that story with Chris and Michael. That's that's uh I'll have to relay that back to them that you told me. Um uh so let's talk about um kind of the examination of ancient literature, right, has kind of always been a long part of biblical scholarship. Um, so why would you say it's important for biblical scholars, um, in the, especially in the New Testament, uh, to explore non-biblical literature, much like you're doing in your dissertation? Um, and more specifically, how can Epictetus, uh, which I think I'm saying correctly, help um, New Testament scholars better read Paul and is there anything about this exploration that could benefit a, like a lay person's reading of Paul as well? Yeah. Well, I think some people will be surprised that I, because of my being known for theological interpretation, started my career and, and actually want to, toward the end of my career, um, focus on a comparative study between Paul and an ancient writer. Um, a lot of things can happen in this kind of work. One is you get to see both the similarities and the differences between Paul and somebody else who lived and breathed in the same intellectual and cultural environment, or at least a similar one. I shouldn't say the same. <clears throat> so it, it helps us to situate it, Paul and see, okay, where does he where does he sound a little bit like maybe a Stoic writer? Epictetus was a Stoic. Where does he sound a little bit like a Stoic writer? Maybe it even does, where does he get some ideas either from the Stoic philosophy or at least from the air in which Stoic philosophy was filtering, if you will. Um, on the other hand, by comparing uh, Paul with a, a, a figure like Epictetus or other figures, we begin to see some of the distinctives of Paul over against 
uh, his contemporaries. So what makes him and his approach to the flourishing of humanity, what makes his approach, approach to spirituality, to religion, to the common life, the common good, what makes it distinctive? What makes it different? So you see both similarities and, and differences. It's, it's sort of like today saying it might be valuable to find a major theologian, let's say Rowan Williams, and how he resonates or doesn't resonate with postmodern thought, or how he doesn't or does resonate with um, uh, contemporary scientific views of the universe, since he talks a lot about about Christ and about creation and you know, things like that. So, it at the end of the day, it's very helpful to see similarities and differences. But the caution that I would give to my fellow scholars is let's not pin too much hope on um, understanding similarities and differences because to some degree we have to let Paul or John or Jesus or whomever stand on their own and not think that ancient literature can give us the perfect hermeneutical interpretive key to this person that we're reading or, or hearing or exploring or whatever. So I think Samuel Sandmill called that parallel, I mean, I know he did, he called that parallelomania. Um, and I want to be cautious not to simply say, well, this is that, and this derived from that, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. um, as for lay people, at the very least, I think it can be helpful to realize that Paul or John or Jesus is, in a sense, a product of his environment, or if we had a biblical writer who was a woman, her environment. Uh, that That's where they're living. That's the people kind of people they're dealing with, interacting with. And uh, I think that's that's helpful to know, even if we can't pin down a specific influence or a specific um, uh, organic relationship. Sure, sure. So, yeah, a lot of your work on Paul and you know, as well as your work on Revelation and other um, areas of New Testament studies has kind of had an eye on the church, right, as we've talked about already. Um, how much of that is kind of an intentional decision you've made, um, and how much of it is kind of more of a, a natural outcome of the sort of ecclesial and institutional context um, in which you're doing your research and writing? I think that it is certainly a both-and situation. I went into biblical and theological studies as a practicing, believing Christian, intending to uh, make my work relevant to myself, my friends, my family, my colleagues, my churches. So I wouldn't have gone into the field for any other reason. I do know people went into the field for that reason, but didn't stay in the field for that reason. Um, 
good friends at Princeton Theological Seminary who literally left the faith. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I, I never wanted to teach, say, in a, in a secular university, not, not that I have anything against secular universities, but I knew that that kind of situation would not encourage or reward the kind of work I was interested in doing. But, but being at a Catholic seminary as a non-Catholic, um, but with an ecumenical division, um, which I served as dean for 18 years, that has certainly given me lots of opportunities, encouragement, support to do the kinds of things that I do. I'm probably much more ecumenically minded. I know I'm much more ecumenically minded than I would have been had I gotten a position at, say, um, Eastern University, which is a Christian university, or at Duke Divinity School, where I was privileged to to teach as a visiting professor um, about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, we have a lot of African-American students. We have a wide variety of denominations and of course, lots of Catholic students. I teach in a Catholic seminary half the day. Um, so all those kinds of things have encouraged me, supported me and allowed me to, to do what I want to do, but encourage me to do it in a different way than maybe I would have done at, say, Eastern University or Duke Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Has your mind changed in significant ways over the years? And if so, how? I'm sure my mind has changed in significant ways over the years. I like to think of most of the changes as organic. Um, that is to say, building on previous rather than some kind of radical change. But probably the most important change for me was through writing the book, my first book, I wrote two books on abortion, both of which are now published by Wiffenstock. Mm -hmm. um, the first book, Abortion and the Early Church, I in the process of writing that, I became a pacifist. Um, so my nonviolent approach to scripture and theology and life generally really began with the writing of that book. That's been the most significant change theologically and otherwise for me in my entire life. And um, that's, that's certainly a major change. I would say an, another change for me has been not so much in, in changing my mind as is changing my approach to people with whom I differ. I, I used to be a, a bit more um, curmudgeonly, I wouldn't say it's too strong of a word, or polemical, but certainly uh, less willing to hear other perspectives sympathetically. So I think my I think I've become a more charitable listener and reader over the years, even if my own positions have strengthened mm -hmm. um, and deepened. Mm -hmm. Other major change I would say, and this is probably more organic than the pretty radical change uh, that I just described to nonviolence. The more organic change has been when I became a Christian believer as a teenager. 
I gravitated to the language of being in Christ. And that has become for me the um, governing image of the Christian life of Pauline and Johannine theology, of Christian life as a theological discipline. So participation in Christ, again, kind of organic from many, many years ago, but that that organic change has been uh, the hallmark of of what I've been becoming over these last um, many years of theological study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Let's we can go ahead and wrap up there. But this has been a really rich conversation. So I just want to say, you know, a big thank you to taking the time for doing this. I know our readers will be really really excited to read this. So thank you so much. Well, I feel I feel more than privileged to uh, to be, and you can add this to the uh, end of the broadcast or the, or the interview or to the beginning. I have been felt privileged to to work with Cascade slash Wiffenstock editors and owners and um, or publishers and um, fellow authors all these years, and I uh, have always enjoyed and benefited from uh, publishing uh, a good number of my books um, here at this place. Thank you, Mike. I know our our editors and our higher-ups will be really grateful to hear that, so thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Theology Mill, brought to you by Lipfenstock Publishers. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our show where we have a lot more content coming your way. I'm your host, Zach Mickle, signing off on this episode of The Theology Mill. We hope to see you again soon to share a drink and talk all things theology. Until then, good friends, God bless, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.